Welcome to Builder Funnel Radio. My name is Spencer Powell, the president here at Builder Funnel. And each episode, we bring you marketing and sales strategies to fuel growth for your home building, remodeling, or contracting business. Thanks for joining me today. Let's get started. Welcome to Builder Funnel Radio, episode 21 with Graham Owen. Graham and I talk about the different challenges that construction businesses go through when trying to grow their business. Graham has a wealth of knowledge, and he has a lot of cool and interesting stories that pop up during this conversation. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. And from those stories, you'll get a lot of takeaways that you can apply immediately. So sit back and relax. Enjoy episode 21 with Graham Owen. All right, Graham, glad to have you on the show today. Hey, it's great to be here, Spencer. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thanks for joining me. I, I'm excited to, to dive into, actually, I think we're going to cover quite a few topics today, but um, maybe you can give our audience just a little bit of background on you and kind of what your your story is. Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, interesting. I grew up in a builder's home. My dad was a builder, so I kind of uh, got introduced to a hammer and saw and doing things as a, as a kid. I used to make toys and all sorts of things. My grandfather actually uh, used to haul logs out of one of the local forests with, uh, <laughs> he used to tell me stories about doing it with teams of horses in the early days and wow. then breaking them down with traction engines. And uh, I remember the stories he told me of the races that had down the main street with uh, uh, races between the steam-fired and the coal-fired traction engines, you know, these puffing billies heading down at, you know, walking pace, hardly running pace. <laughs> uh, so, and and then... When I went to university, I, um, I studied civil engineering. That was kind of uh, uh, natural to do that. It carried on from building trade. thought I was going to do building, but I ended up teaching for 25 years, lecturing. And then when I got into coaching, uh, it was uh, quite natural that I ended up working with businesses, and the businesses that did well under me were building businesses. So 10 years ago, I established the Successful Builder as a brand of my business, focused on those, and it's actually been quite successful and uh, won a few awards for builders. Uh, that's been encouraging for me. That's awesome. Yeah, so you spent the majority of the last 10 years or so coaching, consulting, and working with people in the construction world, builders, and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, that's correct. Yes. Gotcha. So what are, you, what are some of the biggest challenges that you see builders today facing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think in the current climate, what, I, what I've heard from a number of areas and what I'm seeing is probably the major challenge is staffing. We're, we seem to have in many parts of the US, many parts of Australia, many parts of New Zealand where we mainly work, uh, we have quite a lot of building growth, quite a lot of uh, a buoyant economy in the building area. And uh, staffing up for that growth is quite difficult. Getting particularly carpenters onto your job can be a, uh, a struggle. And then, of course, getting sub-trays to turn up on time uh, when they're busy, when everybody wants them, when they can more or less name their price, uh, makes it difficult to be able to deliver through to your client your product when you want to on an agreed budget. So that is a pressure point for builders. In perhaps a longer-term area, a longer-term challenge, and uh, we're talking this over with a few of our clients, it's the question of uh, the technology of building and uh, the manufacturing of pre-made homes, delivery, and how that's going to affect us in these countries where we've tended to build with builders on the site, but we're facing 
growing competition in the area of technology. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of a lot of change going on in the technology space, no matter what industry, and in, but certainly in the in the building space. And yeah. um, I'm sure we could talk about um, you know automation and artificial intelligence too, but we won't we won't go down that path <laughs> quite yet. Um, but I guess I'm hoping my intelligence isn't too artificial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I could use some of that artificial intelligence. So, um, but you mentioned that the finding good people, hiring is a, a big challenge for growth. Are you seeing, um, I guess, some ways that some of your clients or maybe people in the in the space are overcoming that challenge and combating that? Um, we're certainly seeing that heavy here in the States where nobody's really going to trade school anymore. Yeah, yeah, and that is an issue. And certainly governments are trying to change that by encouraging people into trades. Uh, what we're seeing is that we need to focus really carefully on probably three areas, and that is recruiting good staff and uh, the skills you need to ensure that your company is attractive to good staff, uh, also training staff, so starting with a long-term view. If that means bringing in apprentices, then getting into the areas where apprentices are, notably last years of school, some of the colleges, and attracting people who are good people into the construction trade with uh, opportunities for promotion, et cetera. And then thirdly, retaining, uh, retaining people by having some good processes in place to ensure you retain them. And currently we're working on developing some more resources in those areas, but that seems to be one of the uh, key areas that we need to focus on in the near distant future. Yeah, I think I think that's good advice, and those steps can certainly you know go a long way towards hopefully yeah retaining and, and keeping good people, but then also being able to find find those people because if you can't do that, you're definitely going to have a tough time growing. And yeah. and kind of in thinking about just taking a, a sidestep and thinking about business growth, especially in in the construction space, um, it kind of seems like there's a few different levels that you go through as you. Uh, go through your business growth journey. You know, are are you seeing that there are some kind of milestones or mile markers that people typically hit in that growth path? Yeah, the kind of builders that I work with are often starting out, or they're they're very small. They might only be them and one other. And uh, growing the business to the first stage is probably the biggest thing for them. Some people talk about they need to make a leap. I talk about crossing the desert, and uh, that's the metaphor I use. The, the, the thing you need to do is get through the desert of, of not having a business, of just being yourself, and the first major stage they, they probably need to get in uh, from the trade-oriented builder who's going into business is to get off the tools. And uh, in order to do that, like crossing a desert, you need a good plan. And secondly, the best way to cross a desert is fast. So you need to do it quickly. And if you can do that, and it might be a little bit scary, a little bit rough on the way, but once you're, you've got a cross, you can kind of regroup and build, uh, you're starting really building a business. So um, I guess one of the big things that many of my clients face is that plan to get across that first desert. And then secondly, overcoming the fear of getting started. It is pretty scary if you've been used to having some regular employment to go to the stage of not having that and having to find your own work. Um, so that's one of the major deserts they need to cross, getting off the tools. I guess psychologically too, there's another desert they need to cross and that is from being a tradesperson to becoming a business owner. 
And when you run a business, you've got to learn a number of things, and there's some basics. And uh, one of the major basics is, of course, just handling money and knowing how the money works in a construction business so that you end up coming up with some profit and not being the, the lowest paid in your growing business. And uh, so that's pretty important. We focus on that. Also, it's discovering where you're good. Many guys starting out offer everything, but nobody who's looking for a builder is looking for everything all at the same time. Very few people want their paths and their fences and their their home remodeled and their basement done and their pop-top through the roof and the kitchen done and the bathroom done and a new home and a double story and all that. But that's what a lot of new builders tend to advertise. They do everything, except that their customer only wants one thing usually. And so we, we help builders to focus on what they're really good at, what they're passionate about, what they can earn money in, what their customers love. In other words, what their, as we say in this part of the world, what their niches or what their niches, and uh, start promoting that and looking for customers that they can really connect with and do business well that's going to generate great results for them. So they need to zone in on that area and find it and find it reasonably fast and focus on it. And I guess if there's a third thing that it is, it's, it's really getting control of themselves because you kind of get pulled every which way when you're in a small business and uh, it's managing your time. And I just had an email today from a, a guy who said, I've learned how to focus on the $500 an hour tasks and, <laughs> and I, I've been leveraging my time. I've been delegating the $75 an hour jobs and it's exciting. So learning how to do that, have the courage to do that is perhaps one of those other deserts they need to cross reasonably quickly. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a few deserts that they need to, to cross, uh, you know, especially early on. There's some of these um, things that they have to overcome, whether it's, like you said, psychological or um, or just learning and, and kind of advancing in their knowledge. And you mentioned getting off the tools as one of those deserts they have to cross. So I guess, what does that general plan look like uh, typically? I'm sure each business is unique, but do you see kind of some general strategies for people to, to make that uh, that track across the, the sand? <laughs> it, it is uh, unique to each individual because every individual has a different setting and also a different set of uh, feelings and fears and concerns. They might have different responsibilities in terms of family or they may be single or they may have opportunities. Uh, thrust in front of them that enable them to get some work quite readily. But uh, I guess if there was a generic standard, it might be uh, while you are still in employment or while you've still got income coming in from somewhere else to um, get the word out amongst as many people as possible who already know you. So the old friends and family go through your social networks and let them know that you're stepping into business and that you're looking to do uh, work almost of any kind just to get started. And then once you're started, uh, uh, work on developing an understanding of who your target market really is. Uh, I think the term today that's often used is your customer avatar. So once you've defined your customer avatar, it's really getting to know them really well until you can see things through their eyes 
feel what they're feeling and start speaking, as it were, through their mouths. Once you start saying that in some of your social media marketing, just through Facebook and those other things, uh, then uh, you'll start to get referrals from people who are like that. One of the other things that I recommend people do to get started is to um, use some of the very elementary basic methods of marketing. You can market actually quite cheaply if you know who you're speaking to. So say, for example, you uh, get a job with a friend or a family to do a small job, a small repair or a small reno uh, kitchen makeover or something in someone's home in a neighbourhood make the most of it. Make sure that you put a sign up outside that property if it's in an area where it could be seen. And then the thing is, in that neighbourhood, it's very likely that there'll be many homes that were built at a similar time and many families that are probably quite similar to the one you're working with. And so they're going to be interested in what's happening in their neighbour's home. So make sure that you have a sign well-placed outside so that it can be seen that there's something going on. And that generates uh, an inquisitive neighbour. They want to know what's happening in there, who's doing it. And so what we've found has been effective has been to do simply a neighbourhood flyer drop. Just introduce yourself. Here we're doing a renovation in your neighbourhood. Hope we're not going to be of any um, interruption to you. We're uh, taking steps to make sure that we keep noise to a minimum and uh, don't interrupt the flow of traffic. But if you do want to have any concerns, feel free to give us a call. Or if you have any uh, things you'd like to chat about, then we'd be happy to talk to you while we're in your neighbourhood. Drop those in some letterboxes. Uh, I've had clients who have started doing that and uh, have built a, a business that caters for five to six staff simply on those neighbourhood flyers. Very, very cheap, very effective. It doesn't work in every area, of course, but it works in uh, suburban localities where there's similar homes, similar people. So yeah. okay. starting on some simple marketing is probably the number one thing once you've got the basics going. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that example because I feel like that's overlooked so often. You know, and, and to your point, it's, it's cheap, it's pretty easy. And it's personal, you know, you can, you can stop by those homes in person as a follow-up to the flyer too. And um, I, I would imagine that kind of helps you find that, that niche or niche, I guess, as, uh, as you said, because you're working in a similar neighborhood and then you're tackling similar, you know, homes that are in that neighborhood. Typically uh, demographic information is probably similar in those neighborhoods. But I guess as you're thinking about, how to, to select your, um, your target audience and your um, corner of the world, so to speak. How do you go about that? Do you just decide that and say, yeah, I think I'm, I'm really good at X, so I'm going to do that? Or is there any research that you should be doing before you kind of pick that and run with it? We, do, we, we really look at three things. Apart from the market research to determine what's going on in the market and um, most builders have got a pretty good idea of what's happening in their, in their market, certainly in the area that becomes their niche. It's probably their niche because they've already got some information about that. So what I help builders to do is to um, make a list of the areas in which they have worked 
in the past or they're currently doing some work in. It might even be just small jobs or where they would like to work. So maybe they've set up a table. There's three or four areas that they could work in or they do work in. And then help them to think about, firstly, are they passionate about that area or not? So if it's renovating a home, are they passionate about renovating homes? Give it a green or a red if they're not, a green if they are, and, and maybe an, a yellow or an orange if it's kind of so-so. And maybe they're also, they've been working on building new homes and they'd love to get into custom architectural build homes. So are they passionate about that? Is it something they're really, really excited about? Or is it ho-hum or is it, no, I don't want to go there? Or maybe it's just into maintenance, small jobs, working with people who need little things repaired and done. Does that really, what captures their imagination? So that's one measure to find your niche. Am I excited about it? There's nothing more powerful than somebody working in an area that they just love. If they're a craftsman and they love crafting, fine uh, finishing, then that may be the, uh, an indication that they love top-end architectural work. And then they need to ask, based on their experience, where have their customers given them great report? So has it been brilliant? Has it been ho-hum or has that been a hard customer to work with? I don't like those kind of customers. So there's another opportunity to find out whether it's a green for, you know, this is brilliant, customers love me, love the service I do, whether it's orange, well, it's ho-hum, they don't so much, or whether, you know, they can't, I can't wait to get away from those customers. Um, and then the third area, what generates the most profit? So if they haven't had much experience, then we might need to help them figure through the costings of various industries and various jobs and various parts of the work. So if it's really profitable or if it's ho-hum or if it's not profitable, uh, do an assessment of those same areas based on profit and look for the one where there's, if there's three green lights, then start your niche in that area. You might modify that in you know, years to come, but it's a great place to start when you really don't have a lot of information, where you're passionate, where you've already had some good experience and your customers have loved you, and where it's been reasonably profitable. That's a very simple formula for figuring out initially where you could set your niche. Yeah, but I think it's a really good formula because it kind of puts some momentum behind you. You know, you've got, you know, like you said, kind of the three green lights. But if you, if you already like it, then you're going to be the least enthusiastic about making it work. And if you have happy customers, then that hopefully will build a little momentum for you. And then, of course, the money part we can't forget about. So uh, yeah. I think that's great. And and kind of shifting gears a little bit over to, to sales, we kind of talking about getting off the tools and some marketing strategies. But I would imagine that it's a big shift for a lot of these um, individuals to kind of put their sales hat on um, and, and start learning that craft. So I guess what challenges do people overcome there and how important is it to become a professional sales individual in that role? Yeah, you're dead right. I mean, almost every builder that I start with has had no experience in sales. I've got a concept of sales but that concept can be shaped by all kinds of things. Um, I guess it, it's interesting because sales is actually one of the most powerful uh, tools that you can use to change your business. It costs very little to get better at sales. 
but it can make a huge difference. So, um, again, when I come to teach about sales, I, 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 I try to think of sales as being a professional advisor rather than a builder trying to get a job. So a professional advisor is not at all concerned about the choice that their client makes. They're primarily concerned about giving the best advice to their client. So when we get the shift in the builder's own avatar, if you like, and they see themselves as a professional building advisor rather than a builder or a carpenter or whatever, then that intellectual shift helps them to start focusing on the needs of their client. So if there was one thing that I would focus on initially, it would be the skill of diagnosing the need of the client. So uh, starting with some foundational questions. What questions can I ask that help me determine the, uh, the dream or the goal or the need of the client? And when I've heard that, then testing whether I've heard it correctly and then starting to suggest uh, some solutions. But in the early stages, what I try to help uh, my clients do is recognize that no salesman can actually govern the outcome of the sale. The customer is the one who says whether or not they want to purchase. If I try to uh, govern the client's outcome, I'm becoming manipulative. I'm becoming the, the old archetypal car salesman, <laughs> you know, who uses all kinds of tricks to get you to say yes. You, you know, if you get nine yeses, then you're going to get the sale. Or <laughs> if I can just get them to touch and do all of this, then and I'll get them, I'll get them into the room by themselves and, you know, and, and they'll sign. I've got them signed. You know, we've got to get rid of all of that. We can't control the decision, especially if it's in a large uh, build and you might be talking hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's a major investment, then those kind of tricks don't tend to work so well. What we're endeavoring to do here is to help the builder come professional advisor to realize that they can actually control the process of the sale. So right at the very beginning, if they can gain agreement from that client to agree to the process of the sale, then that enables them to walk with that person right through. They are then determining how the sale should go. Usually in a build, there's quite a period of time from first contact through to signing an agreement. It may be the creation of a design. It may be picking up uh, uh, plans and details from the local authorities. There may be engineering to do. There's all kinds of things that need to be done before we can actually get to the stage of signing a fixed price build agreement or whatever it might be. So if we can stay with that client through the process, then we can become more and more the professional advisor and demonstrate the value to them. So when it comes to the crunch of which builder, we've already created additional value on top of what might be the cost of our build. So shifting tax to become less of a builder or a salesperson and become more of a professional advisor helps a lot to remove that 
uh, tension initially. I'm not a salesperson. How do I do it? I had an example of a guy uh, that that uh, started out this way. He'd been a builder. He came off the tools, and uh, he and a colleague set up a a small maintenance building company, and they knew nothing. He had no experience of sales, so I just taught him to sell. I trained him to become a professional advisor. We worked on some basic scripts around the areas of positioning, sharing guarantees, all of those, and we looked at the overall process. So he didn't know any better. He just went and did it, (laughs) and his conversion rate was huge. In fact, with some of his smaller jobs, you know, 20,000 odd small repairs, he was able to estimate them there in the time he was with the client, go through the process, leave them to make the decision, explain it right at the start, of course, and uh, sell. He's currently now selling, you know, 600 to $1.5 million jobs, and his conversion rate is huge. That's just awesome. learned how to become a professional advisor. Yeah, do you find that a lot of it really seems like it's asking questions, right, and trying to uncover what the the goal is and you're trying to provide a solution versus, yeah, I'm going to sell you a bunch of materials at the end of the day and it's going to look like this. There's usually something behind that that's that's driving the decision. Yeah, I I suggest to them they think of themselves a bit like a medical professional, but uh, they spend a fair amount of their time diagnosing. So if you are able to diagnose so that the client says to you, that's exactly right, then you've earned a fair amount of credibility to uh, oft- that, that your solution will be the one that they want. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and what would you say to somebody that's maybe struggling to just get in front of these homeowners or prospects, these target audience, and they, they're struggling to generate leads and they're not able to get into these conversations? If they've done some of their basic uh, work and they've got a fair idea of who their customer is and what their target market is, what their niche is, then and, and if they're really struggling, then get some help. That's the time to go and get some marketing help. If you can say to your marketer, I'm looking for Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Mr. and Mrs. Smith are 45. They've got two children. Their children are 11 and 15. They go to the local high school. He is an IT engineer, and she's into social services. And uh, at the moment, they're living in a home that's feeling cramped, and uh, they want to do something about it. And uh, they particularly want to add on some space, or they want to go into a basement area. They, They want to add on something for their children in their teenage years to be able to have a bit more space. They're worried because if they don't do this, their kids are going to regret. They're going to regret that their kids are going to remember their teenage years as really cramped and tiny and their parents would seem to be at them all the time and they're falling over each other. Uh, and so they, they want to do this, but they're just not sure where to get started. If I can go to a marketer with that kind of message, a good uh, marketing person is going to be able to come up with means and methods to start generating leads amongst those people. And I'm glad you answered it that way because I feel like that's super powerful that we often forget that that's kind of the core of, of marketing is really recognizing who are we trying to attract? Uh, because if you're trying, like you said earlier, if you're trying to attract everybody, it gets really complicated and you know what's your message really? It doesn't speak directly to them. But what you just rattled off I mean, I have a picture in my head. I know exactly what's going on. And, and if, if that's a part of the marketing and somebody sees that and that's them, they're going, wow, 
that's me. I need to be talking to the, to this individual. So uh, that, that was an awesome description there. In thinking about, you know, we kind of talked about marketing a little bit in sales and becoming a sales professional, but um, I often think we forget that the delivery of the service is a huge part of your future marketing, you know, creating happy customers. Is that a, an area that you find as a, a challenge or does that come naturally to most individuals that you're working with? Most of the builders that I work with are the ones who want to deliver good value. The reason that they start their own business is they think, I'm a good builder. I'm doing some good work here, but I'm just earning standard wages. I reckon I can do better. And uh, I, I hardly ever find the builders amongst my clientele who want to do a shoddy, shonky, rough job and get paid for it. Yeah. Um, so th that's not really an issue with the people I work with. The issue, of course, is for them to ensure that their sense of quality and customer service becomes ingrained into the culture of the business so that the people they employ will carry it on and do the same for their clients. One, one guy who sat down with his team, he was only a small team, maybe half a dozen people, and he said, guys, what do we want our customers to think about when they think about us. And they came up with maybe half a dozen statements. So they then turned those into rules and they post them on the job where they're working so that if the customer comes by, he sees their rules. And their rules are, we believe in doing our work to a standard of excellence. You know, there's a few other things like that that they just quoted that the customer would like. And so he says to prospective customers, here's the rules. This is what our team wrote. And uh, they hold each other to those rules because they realize that if they really want uh, to keep their jobs, they need to deliver great service because they've understood that it's not the boss that pays them, but it's actually you as the customer. And you're only prepared to pay for great workmanship, good quality or what you want. Yeah, and, and getting the team to, to create those rules, then they're going to be a lot more likely to, to follow the rules and, and want to you know, commit to that because they said, hey, this is what we believe in. And I've got another client who just in the last three weeks let two staff members go. And the reason he let them go was because his team told him these people are actually not making a good impression. They have a view that they turn up, do their work, leave. They don't really worry about doing it well. They just do it, you know, in a manner that's okay. And uh, so and that, that message came through over about uh, six weeks or so with these people. So he made the decision he's going to let them go. So he did. And the interesting thing is the team is saying to him, you know, we're down a couple of guys on the overall team. So his uh, project manager was saying, I think they've got about 12 people on the team. He's now down to 10. Funny thing, we're actually turning out as much work as we were with those other two. There's far less interruption. Everybody's getting on so much better. That's incredible. Yeah, and love that story. I mean, the the team is kind of self-monitoring for you what's happening. And and I guess, I mean, you mentioned this as kind of the culture. And, and when we think about company culture, I feel like that's something that sometimes it's talked about out there and it kind of feels like a buzzword, like you have to have good company culture. And how important is that to to growing your business is actually having a, a strong culture where you can retain people and, 
and they're they're bought into the system and where you're trying to go. The truth is the culture you have will multiply as you grow, but it will tend to decline because people are coming into it who uh, haven't yet grown into the culture. So it will tend to change and it tends to change downwards. So my thing is culture is what is probably the most important thing. I think it was John Maxwell that said with respect to vision, culture eats vision for lunch, was it? Maybe that's not quite appropriate, but someone else said, and I'm just, I'm just not sure who it was, that um, companies don't win, cultures do. I'm not sure whether it was Jim Collins, whether I read it there. Companies don't win, cultures do. I'm absolutely convinced of that, that it's cultures overall that win. So setting up cultures can be actually really quite straightforward. It's just a matter really of coming up with half a dozen points that are your values that you want to stick to, and then creating the rules around that, and then creating some of the methods of celebrating when culture is observed. So helping the team to celebrate uh, with maybe, you know, I don't know, a, a beer and barbecue or a weekend away for somebody who's really illustrated one of the points of culture to highlight the elements that are important. I encourage our guys to come up with about a dozen points of culture. Uh, and then culture might be something like we believe in excellence or we believe in being a team or uh, we, 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 we help each other or we communicate. Uh, and then highlighting one of those through each month of the year. So you might do that in some of the toolbox talks, just highlight the point of culture. And one company I worked with um, had an award every month for the person who best exemplified that cultural statement they had for that month. And uh, one of the awards was um, keeping, keeping the cleanest van. So for that particular <laughs> month, every, every company vehicle was polished and cleaned and tidied. Um, so at least it got an annual clean. <laughs> but there was one guy who always won up because he was fastidious. And uh, that was just who he was. So his particular vehicle was always clean and tidy and gave a great impression because their cultural thing was they want to speak well about their company. They want to communicate well to their clientele. Yeah, and I like those examples because, sure, it's one thing to write those cultural items on, on paper or post them somewhere, but then you have to follow through on them, right? So you have to you know, do the monthly awards or recognize people that are following those or on the flip side, your example of, hey, we're going to let some people go because they're not following through. And, and that sends a big signal as well. Yeah, I think um, culture is something that it's it's fairly intangible, but when you've got it really going, you can feel it. And, and I like those, those examples that you brought up. So Graham, as we kind of wind down our conversation for today, I, I have one last question for you. But um, before I get to that question, how can people connect with you and, and find you online, that sort of thing? Um, this has been really insightful. Simplest way to connect with us is just via our website, thesuccessfulbuilder.com. Perfect. Yeah, and we'll make sure to put a link into the, the show notes when we publish this so everyone can, can get over and connect with you. Um, but, yeah, as we close for today, if you could leave our audience with one piece of advice, what do you think that would be? Spencer, if there's one piece of advice I would give to someone contemplating starting their own business or if they've started it already and uh, uh, need to take it to the next stage is take action. It's decisive actions that move a business forward. The truth is some of those actions may be wrong 
But if you take them, at least you'll learn quickly. Indecision never got anybody anywhere. That's awesome. That's great advice. And I think a great way to, to close our conversation today. Graham, thank you very much for, for joining me. This was an awesome conversation and I think really, really helpful to our audience. It's been a pleasure, Spencer. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Builder Funnel Radio. Don't forget to visit www.builderfunnel.com for tons of free marketing and sales resources. And if you ever need hands-on help implementing your marketing and sales system, just send a quick note to radio at builderfunnel.com. And as we close for today, remember, never stop learning. See you next time.